Tapestry. We are in a series here, second week here, uh, in this uh, thing we're doing where we're talking about the identity of Woodland Hills Church by looking at some of the movements in church history that inform our theology. Oh, by the way, my name is Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And you guys look spectacular this morning. Yeah, you do. And you're saying spectacular, and it's fantastic. So it's good to be here. Um, so we're looking at different movements and, and ideas in church history that, that form this kind of odd church that, uh, that we are. We don't fit neatly into any particular category. Uh, and so we want to give people an idea of sort of uh, the various threads of the Christian tradition that converge on Woodland Hills Church. Uh, so last week we looked at uh, our relationship with the Church Universal, the, the historic Orthodox Church. And we noted last week how we... Uh, with all churches within the Orthodox stream of Christianity, we share the core central doctrines of the church, or what are often called the dogma of the church, the faith expressed in the Apostles' Creed. And um, so we have that in common. And the, the cornerstone of all of that is Jesus Christ. So we talked about that last week. This, this week we're going to begin to talk about some of the distinctive beliefs of this church by looking at the, the Protestant Reformation and how it has impacted us. Uh, we'll be looking at, in particular, the theology of Luther. So we're calling this the Lutheran thread. And uh, how we'll note how it has uh, uh, formed uh, the theology of uh, this church. So let's start with a, a word of prayer. Uh, Abba Father, we want to submit this message to you. Make this your moment. Uh, and ask God that you make this your word. And infuse it with your authority and your power. Uh, God, I thank you for every person in this auditorium. And every person that's listening through podcasts, our, our podrishners, and folks who are listening on television or watching on television or any other means. And God, I pray that for every one of them, you would open up our minds and keep us attentive and open our hearts to receive your word deeply and do what words themselves can never do, and that is to build the kingdom. Holy Spirit, will you do what words can never do and, and, and infuse these words with your authority to build your kingdom, to uh, create us more in the image of Jesus Christ? to motivate us to be more invested in the body of Christ, to live out your unique, radical, beautiful life. On earth as it is in heaven, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. So I, I thought it would be good to start with a little talk about Luther, who, who this guy is. He's an interesting guy, and then we'll get into his thought here in, in a little bit. But I've always been fascinated with Luther. Um, on the one hand, he, he was brilliant, if you read his writings, the guy had a lot of smarts going on. Um, he had said that he had the entire New Testament memorized in the original Greek. He had some, some, something of a photographic mind. It was just brilliant. But he combined that brilliance with a, a rather tortured psyche. Uh, the guy had, I think, as I look at some of his writings and some of the things he says about his own life, that uh, today he might have been diagnosed as having a little bit of an OCD issue going on. Uh, before they had any kind of medication for uh, OCD, that's obsessive compulsive disorder. This guy obsessed on a sin, it seems to me. Er the early part of his life, he just was uh, obsessed with uh, an awareness of what a sinner he was. And he was always afraid of the wrath of God. So he was planning on being a lawyer. That's what his dad wanted him to be. And that's how, back in those days, uh, we're talking early 16th century, if you had a lot of smarts going on, you became a lawyer, that's the best way to make money. So he's planning on having kind of a worldly life as a lawyer. In 1505, he's riding on his horse going somewhere, and he gets caught in this enormous thunderstorm. And a lightning bolt lands really close to him, knocks him off his horse. And uh, he, he is having the kind of twisted psyche that he's got. He's sure that God is going to smite him dead. 
And so in the middle of this thunderstorm, being a good Catholic boy, he calls out to St. Anne, who is the mother of the Virgin Mary, and, 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 and says, St. Anne, if you'll talk to God and, and, and have God spare my life, I vow I will give my, my life to him and I'll become a monk. Well, it turns out that he survives the storm and he stays true to his word, so he, he becomes a monk. So he enters the monastery, this guy with this OCD kind of obsessive uh, thing about his sin and fearing God's wrath. And uh, he becomes this austere monk where he's always involved in penance. He's uh, always in, in prayer uh, he, and he spends a lot of time in confession. He tells us this in, in some of his later writings that he would spend an hour, sometimes two, sometimes three hours in confession in the monastery, confessing sin to the abbot of the monastery. That's the guy who headed up the whole thing, and he had to hear the confessions of the priests in the monastery. And, and uh, so he's spending two, three hours confessing sin. Now, I don't know how you have that much temptation while you're in a monastery to be sinning that much, especially when three hours out of the day are spent confessing your sin. But he says that he would be doing this. Sometimes he'd be sinning while he's in the confessional. And I think it's like one of these things where, uh, you know, if I tell you right now, absolutely, do not think about a pink elephant. You see, you just did. Uh, if you think about a pink elephant right now, then you're sinning. See, look, at you can't stop yourself. Uh, that's what happens when you're, you, you start obsessing about sin. He's, he's, I think, you know, thinking here, I can't have a lustful thought. Ooh, I just had one. No, I must fight that lustful thought. Oh, there I go again. And so he's, he's in this, you know, confessional, giving kind of a, a, a live stream report on the sin in his life, driving the abbot crazy. So the abbot finally concludes that this guy needs to get his mind on something else. He's got a bright mind, but it's just twisted because it's all turned inside. He needs to get his mind on something outside of himself. So he sends him up to Wittenberg University to study theology. And in 1512, uh, Luther gets his doctorate in theology, becomes a professor. And um, that is uh, really uh, the thing that turns his life around. Because as he's studying theology, and as he's teaching theology, he starts to see some things that other people weren't seeing. Uh, one of the things he saw, the most important thing he saw, was, was, uh, had to do with God's grace. As he was studying the book of Romans and teaching students on the book of Romans, he discovered this, the beauty of God's grace and how his, his standing before God is not based on his works, but based on, on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he's in Jesus Christ. And, and he begins to see something about God's love and how he is, is uh, forgiven for free. And, and this revolutionizes this guy. This guy who has this twisted psyche, you know, he's so aware of his sin. This was just such a relief for him. So he begins to teach this and preach this vibrantly to students that, that we were saved by our faith in Christ through grace. And it was just so liberating. Another thing that he saw as he's professor here at Wittenberg, and this was kind of a, a, you know, a secret that everybody knew. Uh, he really got on the inside of it. And that is that the church was really corrupt. I mean, at this point in history, the church was really corrupt all the way to the top. Um, a lot of the corruption had to do with the sale of indulgences. Uh, you know, the, the, this was, I think, one of the best money-making schemes the church has ever hit on. We've had some good ones here, but this was, this was the best money-making scheme that anyone's ever devised. Because in this teaching here, uh, you had this thing called purgatory, which almost everyone went to unless you're a, a perfect saint. You went to purgatory where you had to burn off your sins before you could get to heaven. And uh, purgatory got longer and longer and longer as the centuries went on. And by the time you get to Luther, purgatory is as bad as hell, and it, and it can last for thousands and thousands of years. But here's the catch. For a little sum of money, you can buy some time out of purgatory or buy time for your loved one out of purgatory. 
And for you know, a bigger sum of money, you can buy more time out of purgatory and, and, or, or, or for your loved one. And can't you just hear that precious wife of yours? She's screaming down there in the hot boiling oil of purgatory. And you can relieve a thousand years out of her suffering for this sum of money. It was brilliant. I mean, that's how they built a lot of those cathedrals out there in Europe. It was just, man, people give if you really convince them of this. They even had a thing that was called total indulgence where you could, for the right sum of money, uh, be guaranteed to never go to purgatory. In fact, in one, uh, one uh, priest... This guy that, named Tetzel that Luther was getting in a lot of fights with, he said you could buy your way out of hell. For the right sum of money, you would never, uh, you guaranteed never to go to hell no matter how you lived. Well, there's mass corruptions, and this is ticking Luther off. So he's preaching this grace, and, and he's, he's starting to call out these, this abuse, uh, getting kind of a, a following going. And in 1517, he and his followers go to the Wittenberg door, the, the, the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral, and they nailed 95 complaints to the Wittenberg door. That's called the 95 Theses, 1517. And that really marks the beginning of the, the Reformation. That was sort of the cannon shot that started the whole thing. Luther continues to preach his doctrine of grace and continues to call out the abuses of the church. He's still a monk at this time, remember. And uh, by 1521 or so, uh, the, the, the officials of the church are getting a little bit worried about this guy. So they put him on trial. It's called the Diet of Worms. When I was a kid and I heard about that, I thought they ate worms. But the Diet of Worms is, means council that was held at the city of Worms. And he's put on trial there for heresy. And towards the end of this trial, it became clear that he was going to be found guilty of heresy. And back in those days, you could go to prison or be burned alive for being a heretic. So Luther does the smart thing and he runs for his life. And he comes under protection from this uh, powerful king. Uh, who, who agrees with some of Luther's theology, and, and this king now gives him protection, and from that fortress, he launches uh, this, this new movement. The church excommunicates him, so he, in league with the, this king and some of his friends, they, they, they decide to uh, have a counter-church, a church that would be fighting this corruption, reforming its doctrine. And so this church, this movement, was called the Protest Church by the Catholics. That's why it was called the Protestants. We're protesters. That's what pro Protestant means. And it was called the Reformation Church by those who are inside. We're here to reform the church. And then it was later on called the Lutheran Church by those who followed Luther and then the Calvinists and then it split on from there. Uh, it, it, it caught on like wildfire for a lot of reasons, partly because a lot of folks were seeing the need for the church to be reformed. A lot of folks knew about the corruption of the church. A lot of folks were buying into this doctrine that he was preaching. Uh, the printing press had just been invented and so that he could print tracts. Very quickly, this is sort of like the, the internet of the Middle Ages. First, this was the first movement that was birthed through uh, the printing press. And so tracts were spread out all over the place, the dissemination of information, and a lot of folks were buying it. And there was a lot of these feudal lords who were getting sick and tired of paying their tithes to Rome as part of the Catholic Church. And, and, uh, and see, if they didn't pay tithes to Rome, the church could impose this thing called interdict, where the priests wouldn't give communion to the people, and the people thought they were going to hell if they didn't take communion, so they revolt against the king. It's one of the ways that the Pope controlled things. And so a lot of these princes were getting sick and tired of this, and Luther said, hey, if you join my church, you don't have to pay your tithes to Rome. They say, that's a pretty good deal, and boom, this thing caught on. That was the, uh, the Protestant movement. And Woodland Hills is part of that. That's, that's a thread that, that partly defines us. Uh, uh, we are a protest church. We protest the corruption of the church, and we're a Reformation church, and that we believe that uh, we should always be reforming our thinking to get it to line up with the Word of God. That's the Lutheran thread. So I'm going to now dive into Luther's theology. As I do, I want you to know that I'm going to try to keep five or ten minutes uh, at the end of this for questions. So if, as I'm going through this, you have questions, you can text this number here, 
651-321-3030. That's 651-321-3030. Visa and MasterCard accepted. Call now. Our supply is the last. <laughs> and get your questions in there, and, and we'll address this. All right, Luther's theology. The core of his theology can be summed up uh, with four statements, four phrases. And they all begin with sola. Sola is the Latin for only. And in this message, you're going to get some education on church history. You're going to get some Latin, and you're going to get some Greek. Man, do we teach in this church. So, four Latin phrases that sum up the core of Luther's theology. Uh, he says, we are saved sola Christus, which means by Christ alone. And we're saved sola gratia, by grace alone. And we're saved sola fide, through faith alone. And all of this is grounded sola scriptura, on, on scripture alone. Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone. And Woodland Hills affirms all, all, all four of those. So we're going to talk about all four of those very briefly. First, uh, sola Christus. Uh, this is something that we, have, we talk about a lot here. In fact, we just talked about it last week. So I can be real brief here today. Uh, Luther saw, the church of the day, of his time, and it's still true to a large degree today, they saw the priest as mediating God's grace to people, at least to a certain degree. The priest heard confessions and mediated forgiveness, and the priest administered the sacraments and mediated grace, and that was believed at the time to be necessary for salvation. Uh, if you don't take the communion, then, then uh, you're not receiving God's grace. And so you're in danger of going to hell. So the priest was, to a significant degree, a mediator between God and people. And Luther, as he's studying the word as a student and then teaching it as a professor, he saw that there is only one mediator between God and human beings. It says in 1 Timothy, there's one God and one mediator between God and humans. And that is Jesus Christ. He is our, our, our sole mediator. He's our sole savior. He's our sole advocate. Uh, he's the sole revelation of God. And so our faith is entirely centered on him, as we said last week. And because of that, Luther saw that, that, that every, every believer, everyone who trusts in Jesus, can go directly to God through Jesus Christ, which means you go directly to God through God, since Jesus is himself the son of God. And we have direct access to God. Uh, it says in, in, in Hebrews 4 that, that uh, he invites, he says, to all believers, let us all come to the throne of God, the throne of grace with confidence. Because it's the throne of grace, we can come with confidence. Because we stand in Christ Jesus, we can come with confidence. We don't need to go through another human being. We don't need to go through sacraments. We don't need to go through an institution. Every believer has direct access to God. When you pray, you have God's ear. Think about that. When you pray, God is listening to you. You're talking to God himself directly. There's no mediation that's necessary there. No, you, you are his child. I Sometimes when I pray, I envision, uh, you know, I, I, I come into the court of heaven. The Bible talks about this court. And I, I get this picture in my mind. This is just a way of representing things. That when I go to pray, uh, the, the, the father says to the court of heaven, quiet, hey, shh. okay, stop. My, my, my son's got something to say. I love it. <laughs> He listens to me. He's got, you have all of God's attention when you go to him. You have direct access to God. And so uh, Jesus Christ is our one and only mediator, our one and only uh, advocate, the one and only uh, one who reveals God. Sola Christus. And then Luther saw uh, sola gratia and sola fides. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. See, the church of his day is still to some degree true today. Uh, they taught that you're saved by grace through faith. And these two things are so close together, I can talk about them as, as one. They taught that you're saved by grace through faith. But they also taught that there's works that you need to do. Uh, that 
you need to, as I said before, be involved in uh, taking communion on a regular basis, that you need to uh, be baptized to be saved, that you need to be involved in good works uh, to be saved, that you need to be involved in penance to be saved. So yes, you're saved by grace through faith, but you're also saved by works. In some ways, you merit salvation by proving yourself worthy by doing these works. And as Luther studied the word, he came to the conclusion that if works have anything to do with it, we are all doomed. And here's where God used, I think, his tortured psyche to reveal the truth, that, that we are left to our own devices on our own. Uh, we've got nothing to bring to God. Ezekiel says that even our righteousness is as filthy rags. And so Luther saw that we are saved by grace alone and through faith alone, and we here within this church affirm that passionately. We believe that, that everything about us as we stand before God is a result of God's grace. We access that grace by faith, but even faith we have because of God's grace. There's a choice we have in this, and yet if it was not for God's grace operating in our life, we would never choose for God. Hebrews, 5, Hebrews 2, 5 says, or 2, 6 says that, that, that faith is a gift of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that that uh, uh, no one can confess Jesus Christ as Lord except by the Holy Spirit. If it was not for the Holy Spirit working in our hearts by God's grace, we would never confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We would never see him as Lord. We would never submit our lives to him as Lord. We would never have faith in him as Lord. If we have faith, then that is a result of God's grace. If you love God, then that's the result of God's grace. And if there's any growth in your life, uh, any freedom from sin, any transformation going on, that's all a matter of God's grace. Salvation is 100% from beginning to end. A matter of God's grace working in our life, which is why in the kingdom there's no room to boast, and there's no place for pride, and there's no place for comparisons, and there's no place for judgment. No, on our own, we would all be gone. We don't feel that bad, but that's just a, a symptom of how far gone we are. We're so sick and diseased by sin that we assess ourselves as being pretty good Joes, you know, and, and, and not all that bad. But the Bible tells us that we are dead in our sin outside of Christ, but praise God. When you have faith in Christ, you are no longer outside of Christ. Praise God. He gives you his, his righteousness. He gives you his life. Praise God. He shares himself with you. Now, here's the thing. Uh, the way that Luther communicated that teaching uh, led to some misunderstandings that have really been quite catastrophic, I think, uh, throughout history. Um, and it's not Luther's fault, really. Uh, he was, he, I've read his, his, his stuff, at least a lot of his stuff, his commentary on Romans. He's pretty balanced. But the way he phrases things sometimes led to some misunderstandings where faith was understood to be mere belief and grace was understood to be acquittal, uh, that you, the, the judge no longer is going to send you to hell. And that created this belief, this idea that if you just intellectually assent to Jesus Christ being Lord, then you're sure not to go to hell. And that's what the gospel is all about. See, that is, I submit to you, a, an unbiblical, self-serving, self-deluded uh, un lie. Uh, faith, as it's understood, this was, Luther saw this, and this is the biblical teaching. Faith isn't just intellectual assent. Uh, it, it's not that you believe in Jesus and, and there, then you're off the hook, no matter how you live. It's, not, it's about a relationship. Faith is not mere belief. Faith is a relationship. Faith is a covenantal thing. Faith is about putting your trust in another person and pledging to live trustworthy uh, in relationship with another person. Faith is like the I do of a marriage. And grace is not mere forgiveness. It is forgiveness, but, but uh, it, it goes beyond that. Grace is forgiveness, but it's also empowerment. In fact, grace is forgiveness, but it's also Christ giving himself to us. 
And when Christ gives himself to us, he empowers us now to live in a way that we're faithful. He empowers us to be transformed into his image. Uh, Faith faith is this relationship that's that's based in the covenant of the New Testament. And grace is the empowerment to live in accordance with that. And so we're never saved by works, but we're always saved with works. You can't receive grace and not be uh, changed. It transforms you. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away, praise God. And when we say, I do to Jesus Christ, it's a radically transforming event. Uh, and so we're not saved by works, but we always are saved with works. It's like if I love my wife, I, I don't earn my wife's love by putting cranking out loving behavior. I'm not meriting it. I'm not achieving it. No, but if I love my wife, I'm going to be involved in loving behavior. And, and if I'm not involved in loving behavior, my wife has every reason to conclude that I don't love her, regardless of what I say. So also, this salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, this isn't some kind of cheap trick. It's not some cheap grace. It's an invitation to a free, beautiful, life-transforming, world-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ where he pours his whole self into us, praise God. And we're revolutionized. Our hearts are changed. Our minds are changed. The old self is gone. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. That's what Luther was getting at. That's what Luther was getting at. Not this cheap thing. So, sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. And finally, sola scriptura. Uh, Everything is to be grounded on scripture alone. In the Catholic Church, you have three authorities. Uh, The uh, authority that you base your faith on is scripture. But it's also believed that the church tradition is authoritative. And it's also believed that the Pope is authoritative. When, when the Pope speaks from the throne with authority, ex cathedra is the term. When he, when he speaks in a capacity of the, the vicar of the church, then his words are regarded as revelatory and infallible on a par with Scripture. And Luther, as he studied Scripture, he came to the conclusion, that's one that we here at Woodland Hills Church agree with, that there's only one sure foundation for our faith, and that is the Word of God. It is Scripture. Uh, a key verse here is 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul says that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Now, that, that phrase, theonoustos, is often, in fact, even usually translated as divinely inspired. We believe in the divine inspiration of the Bible. But that's really not a good translation. The word here is, uh, theo is God, and noustos means to breathe. So it's not so much that the Bible is inspired, but the Bible is expired. It's breathed out by God. And that's why it has that divine authority. All scripture is God-breathed. That captures the weight uh, of this phrase much better than divinely inspired. Poems are inspiring. Songs are inspiring. Sermons may be inspiring, but scripture is more than that. Scripture is God-breathed, God-expired. That's why it carries this divine authority. And it's the only thing that does. Uh, Luther saw that things can be valuable in the church tradition or in any tradition, but they're not, it's not God-breathed. And the Pope maybe is a nice guy, a smart guy, a godly guy, and maybe God can you know, speak through him in, in inspiring ways, but he's not God-breathed, not entirely. And other books you may read may be helpful, and other teachers you may follow may be helpful and inspiring, but, but only Scripture is God-breathed. So this is our one source that has divine authority. This is the one foundation that should carry divine weight for us. This is our one ultimate court of appeal that we go to. This is our one ultimate constitution. It's the God-breathed written Word of God. Amen? Amen. And, and so we here at Wilderness Church teach that everything we do has got to be grounded in the Word. 
Now, Luther saw that the worst enemy of Scripture, traditions not only not as authoritative as the Word of God, but it, it's, it can be, though it can have many valuable things, it can also be the worst enemy of the Word of God. Uh, when someone attacks the Word as an enemy, like when a Richard Dawkins or, or Christopher Hitchens or Sam Harris or Bart Ehrman or any of these guys, when they attack Scripture, you, you know, they're an enemy of Scripture in, in, in a sense, but we see what they're doing and we can respond. You see it coming. That's not the worst enemy of Scripture. What Luther saw in the church of his day, we need to apply it today, is that a, a far more subtle enemy can be tradition. Because tradition, you don't see it coming. Tradition defines us without our noticing it. Tradition is, is you know, kind of our normal. It's part of the air that we breathe. And so tradition has the capacity to color the way that we read the word. And in fact, tradition has the capacity to, to co-op the word so that the word of God ends up being nothing more than a prop to support our tradition. And we don't even see it. We don't even notice it. Tradition can be very subtle. So it's a far more scary enemy than the folks who come at it overtly. Uh, this happened in the ministry of Jesus. As Jesus was debating with the religious leaders of his day, uh, one of the things he always was locking horns on is the way that they put tradition, uh, sometimes above scripture, though without noticing it. He says at one point, why do you make, why do you uh, break the command of God with your tradition? He was always poking at him in that way. Now the Pharisees didn't know that they were doing that. If you were to ask the Pharisee, they would have said, oh, no, no, we only believe in the word of God, that's all. But see, they were shaped by a tradition and formed by a tradition such that uh, the reading of the word was, was colored and distorted by that, and they didn't even notice it. And so Jesus is trying to cause them to wake up to the way that, that the tradition is, is affecting their reading of the word. Uh, we see this warned about all over the place in Scripture. In fact, we just recently examined this in the book of Colossians, didn't we? Uh, it's funny, I, no matter what I preach on, I end up always coming back to the book of Colossians. I can't get away from it. I'm trying to get out of this series here, and I keep coming back to it. Colossians 2.8, we just preached on this. Incredible passage. And it's all about this tradition thing here. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces, stoicheion, of this world, rather than on Christ. Stoicheion. Everyone say stoicheion. Stoicheion. You're learning Greek now. We saw this a couple weeks ago. Very important stuff here. Stoicheion. I was talking about the Hunger Games, remember? Stoicheion are these fallen principalities and powers that can influence fundamental structures of society to the point where they influence our philosophy and they can influence our tradition. And they're deceptive because we don't see them coming. They're deceptive because our tradition becomes our normal. It's just our way of looking at the world. It's the air we breathe. We don't notice the water that we swim in. Stoicheion can influence these things. And so we end up co-opting scripture to just use it for the purpose of propping up a tradition. Not realizing that it's shaping us in ways that are maybe contrary to the the word of God. Uh, We agree with Luther that that's something we always need to be aware of. In fact, we agree with Paul that this is something that we need to be aware of. we here at Woodland Hills Church believe, and I just preached on this a couple weeks ago, that uh, we have no reason to think that the stoicheion, these principalities and powers, are not as much at work in our culture as they have been in every culture. Uh, we have no reason to think that our culture is exceptional in this regard. So this warning applies to us. And we need to be aware of how the tradition of the culture, maybe the tradition of our denomination, 
can be shaping us. And we always, always need to be trying to step out of that to look at the word apart from uh, the, the lens of our tradition, American tradition or denominational tradition or whatever tradition that you're talking about. And we here at Wilderness Church, and this is kind of a distinct emphasis that we feel called to preach with passion. But we feel all the more urgent about this because we know there's a long tradition of the church doing just this here in America. A long tradition of the church fusing the kingdom story with the American story. A long tradition of the church taking the values of the culture and the story of the culture and and fusing it with the, the, the values of the kingdom and the stories of the kingdom. A long tradition of the church using scripture to just prop up the American tradition and give more authority to the American tradition and greater esteem to the American tradition. You see, and, and so the church has in, in throughout history been to a large degree at the forefront of this cheerleading mob that says America is the one nation that's favored by God. America is the one nation that's uniquely under God. America is the one nation, you know, that the holy nation, the Christian nation, and, and that uh, America is the city set on a hill, and America is the light of the world, and America is the last best hope of humanity, and our values are God's values, and our wars are God's wars, and we here at Woodland Hills want to be crying out, stop, enough of this, enough of this. There's a lot of good stuff in the American tradition. Don't get me wrong. A lot of value, but it's not the kingdom of God. We've got to keep these two things distinct. Got to keep these two things distinct. That's the work of the stoicheion. The stoicheion. Where we, the, the unique beauty of the story of Scripture, the unique authority of, of, of Scripture is compromised. When we fuse it with all the stuff of the tradition and, and, and we, we co-opt the, the, the scripture to use it to, to buttress stuff that we find valuable and stuff that we like. Oh, God's on our side, not on their side. And all these quotes, by the way, are, are from politicians just in the last several years. Last best hope of humanity and all that. I thought Jesus was. Turns out America is. See, I, see that, that's the work of the Stoichaean. And, and we don't even notice it. Calling America the light of the world? No. Jesus is the light of the world. End of the discussion. Amen. Well, we don't notice it because the story can. We just don't notice how, how Scripture gets corrupted like this. See, folks, uh, the church is not called to be a pro-American rah-rah club. I'm sorry. And we're not called to be a pro-democracy rah-rah club. And we're not called to be a pro-democratic rah-rah club. And we're not called to be a pro-Republican rah-rah club. And we're not called to be a pro-Green Party rah-rah club. And we're not called to be a pro-socialist or capitalist rah-rah club. We're called to be called to be a Jesus rah-rah club. Amen? A kingdom rah-rah club. A grace rah-rah club. A scripture rah-rah club. We rally around Scripture and nothing else. You know, see, that's why that our Constitution is not... The, the Constitution that shapes us and defines us is not the Constitution of the United States of America. And the story that should shape us is not the story of America. Our Constitution is, is the God-breathed written Word of God and nothing else. Praise God. Uh, and we, we stand on that, and that's the story that should shape us. And, and so we want to be a people who, who rally around one thing. And, and it's this, and, and, and the... The church, this is why the church, the essence of the church and what we stand for ought to look the same. What we rally around uh, ought to look the same whether you're in America or whether you're in China or whether you're in Russia or whether you're in North Korea. Because Jesus Christ is the same in all those contexts and the kingdom of God is the same in all those contexts. So the call of God is the same in all those contexts. And yeah, the culture you know, has a little flavor to it and whatever, but we're called to live lives. Here's the thing. Uh, our passion, and Luther would say amen to this if he was here right now. Uh, our passion is to, through preaching the word and studying the word, to have our lives shaped in ways where we manifest the values of the kingdom in contrast to the values of the culture. 
rather than, than appropriating the values of the culture, we're to conflict with them. We're to put, it, put on display a, a different kingdom, a kingdom that's not of this world, and a savior who's not of this world, praise God. And, 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 and we want to preach the word and study the word in a way that our lives are shaped so that, that uh, we reflect the beauty of that other kingdom in contrast to much of what's here in this culture. And we want the way that we spend our money to reflect the values of, of the kingdom and conflict with the values of this culture. And the way we spend our time to reflect the priorities of the kingdom and conflict with the priorities of this culture. And the way that we do our life and the way that we relate to our friends and the way that we relate to our enemies, the way that we do business, the way that we do, we do relationships, all of that should reflect God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And if it does that, it will certainly conflict with the traditions and the values and the story of the culture around us. Because as a matter of fact, the two fundamentally disagree. So we need to be a people who wake up to the stoicheion and declare that we stand in the word of God. We want everything that we believe in, everything that we hope in, everything that, that forms our convictions, everything that forms our aspirations, all of it to be grounded in the word of God and in the word of God alone. Luther says amen. What do you say? Amen. amen. All right. Let me end, and then we'll have time for a few questions here. I want to end with just uh, three, three quick tips about reading the Word of God. I actually forgot this whole section in the first sermon this morning. Oh, I just forgot it. Okay, so here uh, three quick tips. Um, reading the Word. You, know, you, see, you, you, you can study the Scripture and read the Scripture in different ways. So first, I want to talk about studying Scripture. And by this I mean uh, uh, there's a role. Now, not everyone's called to do this. But uh, many of us are, and I think it's healthy and good for us to, to be involved in this. But this is where you study the scripture, where you, you want to get back to what its original meaning was in its original context. What was it saying to the original audience? Now, that actually is very hard to do, because you're reading literature that is, some of which is over 3,000 years old. You're reading literature that comes from a culture that's radically, radically different from modern Western culture. And, and so that's a hard bridge to cross. To do it, you need to rely on experts. And so I, I want to hear, uh, just share a couple of resources for those who want to go deeper into the Word and study it on your own. Uh, the first one is a book that I think every uh, Christian should read. If you want to really understand Scripture, this is a great book. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. Um, it just is a great, great introductory text telling you about the different kinds of literature that are in the, the, the Bible uh, the way that the writings of the Bible will, are, are going to be different from the way writings are today. Uh, it'll help you understand idioms and phrases and stuff like that. Because there's a lot in the Bible that you simply cannot understand or you'll misunderstand if you import your Western modern worldview onto the text. All right? so the goal is to let the text speak to us. So this is a very helpful tool. Another very helpful tool, indispensable, is the Bible background commentary. The IBP uh, Bible background commentary. There's a, an Old Testament commentary and a New Testament commentary. Uh, they're rather spendy, so you might have to save up your pennies for a while to get them. But they are indispensably valuable for studying the Word because what happens is this. Uh, on every passage where they believe that a Western person might not understand or might misunderstand because the passage presupposes a practice or a worldview that we don't share today, it provides that. It provides all this background information to help us understand uh, the, the, the scripture. Very valuable stuff. And finally, as you study the scripture on your own to get to the original meaning and the original context, it's always helpful to have a commentary. A lot of the commentaries out there are just 
too academic for lay folks to benefit from. They get involved in all sorts of issues that really most people wouldn't be concerned with. Uh, and then there's commentaries that are just so watered down that they really don't give you any meat. This is a commentary, the NIV application commentary, I have found personally to be the best at combining those two. We have solid scholarship to help you get at what it means, but also it, it uh, relates it to uh, our everyday lives, the application commentary. It's the one that I use the most as I'm preparing sermons, so that's something you might look into. So that's studying the Bible. Then there's uh, a second way of reading the Bible, which I might just call experiencing Scripture. And this is what I think we all should be doing. Uh, where we read the Bible for devotional purposes. You read the Bible to, to hear God speak to you today. And you read the Bible as a way of strengthening your relationship with Christ. Uh, and, and you read the Bible like a love letter that's written to you. Uh, in terms of reading the Bible this way, devotionally, uh, I encourage you to read it slowly. Don't read it like a newspaper. Read it slowly. And read it prayerfully. Even sometimes praying the passage back to God is a way to, uh, for God to use it to speak to you. Um, I encourage you to, as you're reading the Bible this way, to always be asking the Holy Spirit uh, to reveal uh, what he wants to say uh, to you through this passage. As you're reading the Bible this way, I encourage you to not worry about when you come, when you come upon stuff you don't understand. Uh, this isn't the time to try to figure all that out. Uh, ask the Holy Spirit if there's something he wants to say to you through this, this uh, passage. But, uh, you know, when you're studying the Bible, that's when you want to get in there and wrestle with these tough verses. But when you're reading the Bible devotionally, don't sweat it. Just... Know that somebody else has wrestled with that and, and, and just let it go and move on and, and be listening to God. As you read the Bible this way, I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to enliven your imagination and read the Bible with all five senses where you enter into it imaginatively. It can be such a great way for God to communicate to you when you are uh, envisioning yourself as one of the characters in, in, in one of the stories, especially with the Gospels. Envision yourself as Mary Magdalene or as uh, the soldier guarding the grave or, you know, however it, 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 the Spirit leads you. And enter into that as vividly as possible. Now, there's some stories of the Bible in the Old Testament where I encourage you not to get too vivid with it. <laughs> It'll traumatize you. Uh, you know, that you read just for information and move on. But, but uh, for gospel stories in particular, uh, enter into it slowly, prayerfully, asking the Spirit to speak to you. And... Uh, and it, it, he does. He'll use the Bible as an occasion to guide us and lead us, instruct us and grow us, convict us and all of that. And that's what it's there for. And the final thing I want to say, and this is going to be very hard because this is the, the topic I'm writing a book on and I only have two minutes to say it because I want to at least have time for one question and being succinct about something that you're right in the middle of studying is very, very hard. But I'm going to try right now. Here it goes. Here it goes. Uh, read the Bible. Always read the Bible through the lens of Christ. Read the Bible through the lens of Christ. It's one of the things that we talk about quite a bit here at Willow Hills Church. It's so important. There's a difference between a cookbook and a novel. In a cookbook, it doesn't matter where the recipe is, it will always mean the same thing, right? The recipe is a recipe. A novel, the directionality, the flow of the narrative is all important. So where a passage is is very important, especially if it's like a detective novel where you know, they solve the riddle at the end of the book. Well, at the end of the book, the last chapter, maybe in the last paragraph, might redefine the whole narrative. The Bible is like that. The Bible is not a cookbook. Some people read the Bible like it was a cookbook, where they just pull out a verse without any consideration for where it is located, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, and they apply it to their life as though it's that simple. The Bible's not a cookbook. Uh, it's a story. It has a flow to it. In fact, the Bible is a lot like the movies, uh, uh, the, the Book of Eli, if you've ever seen that movie, or The Sixth Sense, uh, where 
uh, the, the last minute of the movie, really, uh, redefines the whole thing. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen those movies? The last minute, it's like, whoa! That totally puts a new spin on everything. And then you got to go back and look at the whole movie again. I think that's why they do it. And watch it twice. Well, that's how the Bible is. The Bible, when, when Jesus shows up, everything gets reframed. This was, this was a surprising twist here. No one saw this happen, coming. Uh, when Jesus shows up, everything gets reframed. In fact, when Jesus shows up, he tells us that everything was about him. We didn't, who would have thought? All of it's about him. He says this in, in, in John. He says, I have a testimony that's weightier than John, which is interesting because elsewhere he says that John is the greatest of all the prophets up until him. So if his testimony is greater than John, and John is greater than all the other prophets leading up to him, that means Jesus is, has a, a testimony that's weightier, more authoritative than all the uh, writers leading up to him, which means Jesus has more authority than the Old Testament. Lock it in. It's not like this is a cookbook where everything's equal. No, there's a flow, and, and, and the revelation that we find in Jesus trumps everything else. Just trumps it. And then he says, you, you, you diligently uh, search the scriptures because you think that in them you possess eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. What he's saying there, who would have thought, this is the surprising twist at the end of things, that if you want to find life in scripture, you only find it when you see how it points to Christ, how, how it reveals Christ. It's Christ in scripture. In fact, this is a point that Luther really got. He didn't apply it very consistently, but he got it. Luther was one of the most contradictory people in history. He is wonderful and terrible. Uh, it's just a, quite a mix. But uh, here's what Luther said. Uh, here's what Luther said. What did Luther say? Here's what Luther said. It is beyond question that all the scriptures point to Christ alone. He got that. It's all about, about Jesus. The law and the prophets are not rightly preached or known, save we see Christ wrapped in them. I love that image. It's like scripture is, is like the swaddling clothes of the baby Jesus. Uh, it, it, Jesus is wrapped up in them. Now, it's not always obvious. Sometimes you look at the scripture and all you see is swaddling clothes. How does that point to Christ? But, but, but if, if Jesus is telling the truth, Christ is in there somehow. We just got to find him. And then he says this. We ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. Uh, we, 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 see, and some people would argue against this, saying, oh, no, the, the original meaning of the verse is the only meaning the verse can have. Well, no, Jesus says that the, the ultimate meaning of the verse is how it points to him. And so it's, it's legitimate to read the Bible assuming what you're looking for. Yes, this is circular, but it's a circular reasoning based on Christ. We know what we're looking for. Christ is there, and now we've got to look for, them, for him. And so I encourage folks to not read the Old Testament alongside of Jesus. Okay? It's not like an authority that competes with Jesus. Never allow anything you find in the Old Testament uh, to compromise what you see revealed in Christ. Don't, it's not an equal authority side by side. This happens all, don't fuse together the pictures of God. So it's sort of Christ-like. No, Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. God looks like Jesus all the way down. All right? So don't put it alongside. Rather, read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. And, and reinterpret everything through the lens of Christ. You see? He's the grid through which we... we so it's never appropriate. Never appropriate. Never, ever, 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 ever appropriate to jump over Jesus and grab something in the Old Testament and apply it to our life because we like it. No, I, I, I don't do that. Read everything. You start with Jesus. I, I just Yesterday, someone gave me this, this uh, quote from this congressman in Kansas who, who prayed the prayer uh, that's out of the Psalms uh, against President Obama saying, uh, may your days be shortened and may your children be fatherless. He prayed this publicly. And it's like, and he was questioning about it. He goes, well, I'm just quoting the Bible. Well, you know, 
If you're, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you start with him. And he prays for his enemies. You, if you have him as your enemy, well, then you pray for him. You pray for his forgiveness. You pray that he won't be judged. Huh. But here's my final thing. It's something to chew on. I tweeted on this yesterday and screwed up a lot of people, so why not screw up you? Um, <laughs> that's what you come to church for, right? I know, but here's, you know, as you read in the Old Testament, you'll find some portraits of God that, are, that seem radically, and I think are radically, contrary to the God who's revealed in Christ. I'm just being honest, that's what I see. Uh, show them no mercy. And how does that relate to the God who says, you know, show them nothing but mercy? Um, uh, as you're, uh, when you find portraits of God that, as you're reading the Old Testament through the lens of Christ, you've got to re- re- ask the question, how do these portraits point to Christ when they seem so contrary to Christ? I, I, how is Christ in them? Well, when you find pictures of God that are less beautiful than what you find in Christ, ask the question, if all of Scripture points to Christ, where in the ministry and life of Christ do you find God taking on a semblance that's less beautiful than he actually is? The answer is on the cross. And on the cross, where God bears the sin of the world. You see the horror of the crucified Son of God. He looks like a guilty, God-forsaken criminal. And yet we see that as a revelation of God, not because God actually is a guilty criminal, but because God was, out of his love and mercy, willing to step into that appearance. And if this is the way God always is, then God has always been a sin-bearing God. And so, you know, on the cross, the ugliness of the cross doesn't reflect on the ugliness of God. It reflects on the ugliness of us. And, and so as you're reading scripture, realize that God's the kind of God who, who reveals his beauty as much as possible. But one of the ways he reveals his beauty is by staying in a merciful, saving relationship with people who are sinners. And he takes on the semblance of their ugliness. Ugliness is, a, ugliness is not about God. It's about the people that he's in covenant relationship with. Think about it. Chew on it. Just throwing it out there. However you do it, you know that all scripture points to Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all grounded on Jesus Christ. It's the God-breathed word. It's our constitution. And on this and this alone, we stand authoritatively. The God-breathed word of God. Amen. All right. Yes. Hallelujah. <laughs> okay, let's take some questions. We got, we got some time here. What do you got? What do you got? What do you got? Okay, what else? <laughs> All right. Oh! See, this is what I like about Q&A time. You never know what's coming. Wasn't Luther anti-Semitic, election-based, and a proponent of war later in his life? How can we draw part of our tapestry at Willow Church from such a person? Bingo! Beautiful! That's, a sl- that's really, really good. Now look, two things. Um, uh, you'll note there that, that what we took from this person was the theology. Uh, and uh, none of that. Um, you know, the, the fact that that is true, and I'll say more about Luther here in a second, uh, it, it is true. Uh, but it just shows you how you know, God uses any means available uh, to manifest truth. Um, you know, there's one point in the Bible where he, he spoke truth through a donkey uh, to Balaam. And so uh, if God can use a, a jackass, God can use me, and God can use Luther. And, and, and you know, Luther, for all of his faults, and he had many, uh, he had an openness, uh, maybe because of his constitution, his tormented psyche. He had uh, you know, an openness to receive a revelation that no one else was receiving, or uh, that very few people were receiving about God's grace. And, and so uh, it's that that we want to affirm. Now, it's true that uh, Luther, it, it, was, it was really sad, um, towards the end of his life, he, he just became a curmudgeon. 
I mean, if you read his table talks, he got nastier and nastier, uh, disgruntled about a lot of things. Uh, one of the main things was that he believed early on that the, he thought that the reason the Jewish people weren't converting to Christianity was because of Catholicism, with all of their rituals and, you know, whatever. And he thought that once they had a pure form of Christianity, that the Jews would all convert. And they didn't. And he, was, he got mad about that. And, and uh, in the last book he ever wrote was a book called On the Jews and Their Lives. It was a two-volume work. And in that work, he said some demonic things uh, about how... Um, we ought to uh, take away Jewish employment. Uh, we ought to have them working in the fields. We ought to uh, tear down their synagogues. We ought to burn their holy books. We ought to just give them. I mean, it was terrible. And in fact, uh, there's a reason why Hitler called him one of the two greatest persons in history, the other one being Wagner. Uh, and, and, and before Luther, uh, before Hitler launched off on his uh, extermination program, uh, he uh, replicated some pages from that book of Luther because you know, Luther had a major influence throughout Prussia that became Germany, and so uh, it, by, by, he used the authority of Luther to launch his program. It was absolutely catastrophic. So that we want to absolutely unequivocally denounce. And Luther believed that he, he was a determinist. He believed everything was determined. In fact, everyone credits John Calvin with this doctrine of predestination, but Luther was far more r- r- rigorous on this than Calvin was. Luther was a, a, a more stringent Calvinist than Calvin. And they both got it from St. Augustine back in the, in the 4th century. So he believed that everything was determined and that God picks and chooses uh, who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. And it, we, at Woodland Hills, at least our, we have a lot of diversity of views here, but our, our, our core belief is that, that uh, election is a corporate thing, not an individual thing. God elects a people. Um, and whether you belong to that people is up to you. There's a choice that you make. Now, you would never choose to be part of it if it wasn't for God's grace. But given God's grace, he doesn't force you to do it. There's a, there's a, a role that you play because God wants a love that's genuine, not coerced. And so uh, we think election is a corporate thing, not an individual thing. So that aspect of uh, Luther, we, we, we let go of. I, I, as we go throughout this whole series, just know that, that wherever you get your, uh, you know, tag, your identity with and you acknowledge that God used a person, there's always going to be a downside because human beings are human beings and they're fallen. And, and so there's no like pure, pristine thing out there. Wherever you go to, uh, there's going to be a downside. So we want to uh, take the good. Whenever, we, whenever you read a book or anything, do it with a critical mindset where you receive the good and you set aside what's not. Uh, we always got to have this kind of critical uh, discernment going on. Excellent question. Thanks for asking that. I appreciate it. Isn't the work of the Holy Spirit God-breathed? Where does that fit into the whole Sola Scriptura thing? Hmm. Isn't the work of the Holy Spirit God-breathed? Okay, I, I, maybe what the question is asking is this. It's true that, that um, in fact, the, the, the uh, concept uh, in, in Hebrew and in Greek, ruach, uh, of, of spirit has a connotation of breath. In fact, sometimes in Scripture, it's not clear whether the, the Bible is saying God sent his spirit or God breathed. Like, for example, in uh, Genesis 1, it says that the spirit of God hovered over the waters. Some scholars think that that was his God breathing on the waters. It's the same, it's, it's a ruach Adonai. Uh, so, yes, the Holy Spirit is a God-breathed work. It's, it has that, that metaphorical quality to it. What Paul is saying is that uh, Scripture is unique in that it is... It is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in a way that no other work is. Uh, yeah, God is breathing all over the place wherever the Holy Spirit's at work. 
Uh, and the Holy Spirit, you know, Paul tells us in, in Acts 17 that God is at work at all people, at all places, at all times, trying to bring people to him, trying to get them to grope for him, putting a desire in their heart for him, uh, and, and hopefully they'll to some degree find him because he's not far from any of us. So God's breathing everywhere. That's true. But scripture stands alone in that God uniquely breathed through these human authors. Now, the Bible doesn't give us uh, any theory of inspiration. It doesn't tell us how that happened or, or all the implications of it. But it does mean that because it's uniquely God-breathed, the Holy Spirit uniquely used these authors because of that, uh, it is our one source to do what Paul says it's supposed to do, to teach, to correct, to train in righteousness, uh, to rebuke. Uh, it's our foundation for, for our theology in a way that no other book is. God may anoint and breathe through other folks in a, in a kind of limited way, but it doesn't have the same intensity and comprehensiveness as we find in Scripture. Excellent question. Appreciate it. Got time for one or two more. How can we trust Scripture to be more authoritative than the Roman Catholic Church when the Roman Catholic Church defines Scripture at the Council of Nicaea? Thank you for asking that. Uh, this is a misconception that I, I don't know... I, I, this was in the Da Vinci Code. Uh, I, I find this out there quite a bit now that the Roman Catholic Church defines Scripture at the Council of Nicaea. Uh, I don't know where that came from, but that is absolutely historically wrong. It's just, it's just mistaken. The Council of Nicaea wasn't about Scripture at all. The Council of Nicaea presupposed Scripture because the Council of Nicaea was about the divinity of Jesus. They had disagreements about how, the relationship between Jesus and the Father. Is he homoousia with the Father or homoousia? Uh, homoousia means the same substance. Homoousia uh, means uh, like the same substance. And they had a big debate over that and that, the, the insertion of that one iota. That's where we get the phrase, it doesn't make an iota of a difference. If you insert the iota in homoousia, you get homoousia and it divided the kingdom. Oh, there you go. You love that stuff. I know you do. Uh, <laughs> doesn't make an iota of a difference. What well, goes back to that? So uh, the thing is that the, the church didn't create the, 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 the Bible. The church acknowledged which books of the, the New Testament were canonical. But uh, it, it was, it was a, a process that was very informal for the first two centuries. Books were written uh, and spread out, and they were acknowledged as authoritative because they came from the apostolic circle. And uh, uh, then there came a time in the second century when the church had to begin to formalize that. Because there's a guy named Marcion uh, who was teaching, that he devised his own canon because he was anti-Semitic and took all the positive references to the Jews out of it. So he had this redacted canon that was much smaller than the New Testament we have. So the church said, hey, we've got to stop this, so let's make it official which books we affirm and don't affirm. But that, that wasn't done by any council. That was, a, that was just kind of acknowledged over, the, over time. Um, and uh, by the time we get to the Council of Nicaea, it, it's pretty much a done deal. Uh, so the Council of Nicaea didn't define any of that. That's a frequent argument that's made, and I don't know where that misunderstanding came from. All right! Yes! Hallelujah! <laughs> All right, uh, I, I'm going to call up the prayer teams, and as I do, I invite you to come up here and pray with these folks. Anything you've got on your life and your heart, marriage, health, whatever, uh, pray with these folks. And during the worship time, folks, I encourage you to take advantage of this. You know, these are folks who just love to pray with you, and, and take advantage of that. There's power in prayer. Power! Don't leave uh, alone with that, that burden. Come up here and pray with these folks. So, Abba Father, as we conclude this message, we pray for all the folks here and listening through podcast, television, that you seal this message on our hearts. Uh, God, drive into our being a conviction about uh, standing on Scripture. And we'll open our eyes to the stoicheion uh, that influence the traditions of the world and compromise us. And God, help us to have a confidence that we stand before you. We can go directly before you, mediated through Christ as we receive your grace through faith. 
and stand in the righteousness that's given to us by grace in Jesus Christ. On him we stand. Amen. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Spread the word.